Welcome to the Tom Nelson podcast. I'm very happy to have uh, Richard Lindzen here today, and uh, he's going to spend some time telling us about the global warming narrative, and uh, totally looking forward to this. Richard, do you want to kick things off by telling us a little bit about yourself, maybe? Okay. Well, currently, I'm a professor emeritus at MIT, but for my whole career, which is a long one, uh, I've been working basically on the physics of the atmosphere, and um, you know, I've had professorships at Chicago and Harvard and, and at MIT, spent most of my time at MIT, got my PhD at Harvard, 64, so it's a long time ago. <laughs> and, you know, my pleasure in this field was I like puzzles, problems. Uh, and I realized at some point there were plenty of people in theoretical physics, which I originally were as good as me. Uh, and besides, their problems seemed really hard. The atmosphere was full of wonderful problems, and they seemed solvable. I mean, one of them that I worked on early in my career was the fact that over the uh, tropical stratosphere, the wind blows roughly from east to west for about a year, turns around, goes the other way for a year. The average period is about 26 months. And that dominates the annual, the semi-annual, and everything else. And the question is, what caused that? Uh, you know, that was fun. And a lot of new results were coming out. And it made possible to figure out how that goes. There were other problems, you know, like in tidal theory. Uh, you know, the atmosphere, also the surface, you have pressure tides uh, from the atmosphere. And there was something puzzling already known in the 19th century. Namely, you know, we knew in the ocean tides, they were semi-diurnal, but with a lunar period. And, uh, you know, it was understood that the gravitational potential of the moon was greater than the sun because it's closer, even though it's much less massive. Uh, the trouble with the semi-diurnal tide in the atmosphere, the surface, was it was semi-diurnal solar. And so the question is, you know, the solar, the forcing is heavily diurnal, 24-hour. Why 12-hour? And Kelvin, Lord Kelvin, suggested that maybe the atmosphere was resonant at 12 hours. And that became clear as we got rocket data and so on, that wouldn't work. And so the question then, what was that? And you know, you could then, we were able to show that the atmosphere actually traps the forcing at 24 hours and allows 12 hours to propagate. So these, these are kind of fun problems. And uh, you go on and, and there are others. And that made it a very pleasurable field. I mean, there, there were things to figure out. And then uh, quite a while ago in the 80s, there started to be global warming, and it was taking off from global cooling. Uh, <laughs> that seemed a little bit strange. And uh, it seemed like an interesting issue, but it was accompanied by so much hoopla. I mean, in 88, you have this Senate hearing, and it's rigged, and uh, you have Newsweek immediately coming out with a cover, the earth on fire, and the statement, all scientists agree, and so on. 
this seemed a deviation from a nice field with interesting problems. <laughs> Climate certainly had very interesting problems, you know, the ice ages and so on. <clears throat> and you know, began to realize uh, that something is going amiss. Uh, suddenly, professional organizations were making declarations on it. More important, the National Science Foundation was taking a position on it. Suddenly, we're finding you couldn't publish contradictory information. Uh, you know, I, I had a distinguished career, and you know, as a member of the National Academy and so on, all this sort of stuff. So, at one point, the American Meteorological Society treated me with a certain amount of patience. Uh, but, you know, I published two papers in their bulletin. And interestingly enough, in both cases, the editor was immediately fired. Really? Yeah. And so, you know, something is amiss. <laughs> and it's a pity because, you know, there were all sorts of interesting things to be found out. But as I think I mentioned to you offline before, uh, what was being done was introducing a narrative. And this seems to be part of present wokeness. You, you, the story is important. And in this case, what was interesting was how the narrative got accepted. Because there was so much idiocy in the narrative. So many things that were wrong. So many assumptions that were questionable that people immediately started attacking them, including myself. I mean, you know, with the greenhouse and the radiative forcing and the feedbacks and all these things. And I don't think any of us realized that in attacking these things, we're accepting the narrative. Yes. That, you know, we're talking about greenhouse forcing, we're talking about this. The narrative really, another Part of the narrative was, as you see every day, uh, at first, the first 10 years of this 30-year <laughs> attack on, on sanity, uh, they would uh, be saying, you know, we have to do something, but it's a long-term problem. We may not see it for 30, 40, 50 years. And they realized that most people, when they hear this, say, I'll worry about it in 20, 30 years. <laughs> right. So there became the need to make it an immediate problem. And so every time there was a weather event or something, they'd say, see? Right. And uh, very often they would make statements like, this is the hottest day on record here, there, or wherever. And immediately the weather buffs would go look at the record and say, that's not true. <laughs> and that was usually the case. Or, you know, sea level is rising, but it's rising, you know, a few inches <laughs> a, year, a century. And so what was not understood when you did that was you're leaving open the implication that if what they said was true, it meant you had to get rid of carbon dioxide. And now it's, uh, you know, ammonia, you know, methane, and then, then it's nitrous oxide, <laughs> destroying countries and agriculture, yeah. so a huge amount of damage. And, you know, one could go on at length with that. 
but you know, uh, probably in the early nineties, uh, uh, there's a a periodical called Annual Reviews. It's a respectable thing. And they have annual reviews in fluid mechanics, annual reviews, and this, that, and the other thing. And they invited me and Jim Hansen to write reviews of climate. And at first he agreed, and then he dropped out. And they did something that would never have been done subsequently. They said, well, we'll publish your piece alone. Okay. And in that piece, I already began to worry about something. Namely, you were looking at changes in temperature, and I didn't know what the temperature was. Um, you know, what are they referring to? The picture they used was one-dimensional. One-dimension, I know what the temperature is. Well, here we have the Earth. What are they talking about? Do you ever hear what they're talking about? No, I mean, are they, they're trying to average the temperature over the, what, the six feet off the ground for the entire Earth? Global well, average temperature, that's supposedly? Right? Right, yeah. Average Mount Everest in the Dead Sea. Yeah, right, it, right. That doesn't work. Now, what they did was something interesting. Uh, they took each station and uh, they took a 30-year average, looked at the deviation at that station from the average, and uh, that's what they averaged, the deviation. So it was called the global anomaly. It's not really the temperature. And, um, okay, there was argument, what does this mean, and so on. And then a guy at the Lawrence Livermore Radiation Lab where well, we do our modeling of nuclear weapons and so on, uh, plotted this data. His name was Grotch, and he's dead now quite a long time. Nice guy. And uh, he suddenly noticed the data points were densely scattered over a range of almost 20 degrees. And when he took the average, and this was in the early 90s, before an El Nino peak in 98, it was flat. So he said, what's going on? So he said, well, let me drop out the data points, because they are showing it's not, and expand the scale by a factor of 10. Okay. Ah, now we have warming. Okay. <laughs> but, you know, what it's saying is that... That metric might be warming, but at any given time, any given station is as likely to heat or cool. So he said that that, that should end the topic. Lots of people had all these things that should end. never ended. Never ended because its motivation clearly was taking over the energy sector. That's big that. bucks, big power, all that sort of thing. In any event, we redid this, John Christie in Alabama and myself, and you know, same result, but here is this metric. This is what we call the warming, okay? And then you get people like Michael Mann and other people are saying, now, well, we only have this since the early 19th century at best, more likely only since 1860. 
we'll go back and we'll use proxies. Northern Hemisphere. A couple of dozen uh, lollipine cone, <laughs> you know, tree rings. Um, and the question is, what does that have to do with this funny thing anomaly? I don't know. You just match it up and go. And they conclude, and they had the name because people are already saying there's evidence it was much warmer a thousand years ago, the medieval warm period. Yes. There's a big thing. We have to get rid of the medieval yes. warm period. So they succeeded. They made a hockey stick that uh, someone called uh, Mike, uh, Steve McIntyre in Canada showed methodology, no matter what you put in, it gave you a hockey stick. <laughs> Saw that. <laughs> uh, you know, so that was good. They said, and, and then again, it was a real misdirection. What they were after were two things. They wanted to say that uh, the medieval warm period didn't exist. And two, that even though the change in temperature was tiny, it was unprecedented. Right. And that was featured in one of the intergovernmental panel on climate change. And that itself is an interesting thing. I mean, watching this evolve, you know, the UN organization it's working group one deals with the science. And I, I participated in that. And uh, I think the, the guidelines we were given were mild, you know, namely, don't be too hard on the model. It was, <laughs> was you know, it wasn't the most profound bias. It's a bias. As a result, working group one tends to be, I would say, cautious doesn't go overboard, but it's biased. It has some very peculiar features. Uh, one of them is the thousands, I don't know how many people participate, but you know, it has to be from all over the world because even though they don't have any programs or anything, but at the end, the report is written and it's given to another group. And this group is uh, mainly government people and the one or two representatives from each panel writing the report. And it writes the summary for policymakers, so be it. And uh, it often doesn't agree with the report. So the rule is the report is going to come out six months after the summary to give time to modify the report to match the summary. Amazing. And that's, that's how, for instance, there was a report, the third assessment, where the people trying to see how could you attribute this tiny change to man and CO2 had concluded that uh, they weren't able to do it yet. But the uh, summary group said, uh, we're pretty sure that we can now say that most of the warming since 1950 is due to man. Yeah. So you saw this uh, from the inside, right? As a lead author, you saw it from the inside. and. Oh, yeah. Did they talk to you when they made up the uh, summary well, that I, time? I wasn't on the attribution panel. Okay. We were right. on the panel on, you know, feedbacks and radiation and so on. Yeah. And we had a pretty good statement that, mm -hmm. you know, we didn't know what clouds were doing and they could have been doing anything. In the models, okay. they're positive feedbacks. Okay. Okay. But this particular part of it, uh, so it comes out and they have a statement we're now, I don't know, 90% sure that most of the warming since 1950 and that funny metric I mentioned is due to man's 
industrial activities or whatever, cement making. <laughs> and um, if you think about it a little, that statement is not particularly worrisome, even if it's untrue, because it's not been much warming. Yes. And it was most consistent with uh, low sensitivity and not much happening. The statement was saying nothing, basically. Uh, it's saying a little bit of warming, and it may be mostly 51% due to man. And so, you know, by the end, it would tell you in a century or so, it'd have maybe another half degree or something. Well, what happened with that statement? All of a sudden, Senators McCain and Lieberman respond to it. They say, we now have the smoking gun and we must do something. <laughs> So they understood you make a, an innocent statement like that, you've covered your rear end, but the political system, the environmental groups, uh, the media will not understand what you've said and they'll go to town. Yep. And so one had, well, we had already had the Rio meeting, the Paris conference and so on. And they go to town with these crazy, crazy policies to get rid of CO2. We're now in the middle of that. I mean, we're giving the EPA the right to control CO2 by declaring it a pollutant. Yes. Think about that for a moment. Here is a pollutant. Let's say some genius comes up with a method. He's going to get rid of a little bit more than 60% of the CO2. And what will be the wonderful consequence of that? The death of all animals, <laughs> the plants have died, there's no food. Yeah. What kind of pollutant is it? You get rid of it and you die. <laughs> That's a great point. <laughs> so, you know, there they go. And at any rate, getting back to this 93 paper I mentioned, I was already wondering why, why can they say two degrees is going to be disastrous or three degrees or one and a half if we don't stop then we're doomed. And the essence of it was something they called polar amplification, that the small change in the tropics was going to be amplified with latitude. And by the time it reaches us or polar things, you know, the ice will melt, the coast will flood, uh, everything will go to pieces. And the question is, what was the basis for that? And there was no basis for polar amplification. <laughs> I, the atmosphere really does have for the Earth, as opposed to, let's say, Jupiter, which has a lot of, you know, bands and so on, uh, two regimes, the tropics, and the tropics are characterized by the fact that the rotation vector, you know, this is oriented along the axis. It's almost parallel to the surface in the tropics. And that means it doesn't have much impact. And so the tropics are homogenized. And there one has the bulk of the feedbacks and the greenhouse and all that stuff. They're operating there. Uh, nobody's denying that. But when you get to the extra tropics, it's a totally different regime. We have cyclones and anti-cyclones, and they're carrying, and we have ocean currents and so on, all carrying heat from the tropics to high latitude. But they're determined in the extratropics. They're not a case where you do a little in the tropics and it's amplified. Okay. They're separate. What they do do is impact the tropics. 
you know, when you have a high flux, it's taking more heat from the tropics and you have low flux. And indeed, in the history of the Earth, this has changed quite a lot. And that's an interesting puzzle again. I like these puzzles. You know, today it's about 40 degrees, typically, between the equator and the Arctic. During the Ice Age, it was about 60 degrees during the glaciation periods. 50 million years ago, we had something called the Eocene. It was a very warm period, with no ice. And then it was 20 degrees. And during that whole period, the tropics barely changed, a degree or two. We, we can't measure it better than that, but, you know, somewhere in that order. And so that was an interesting question. Here, the tropics, despite the fact you're pulling different amounts of heat out of it, it's staying there. I would suggest the Earth is well-designed. <laughs> you know, it could do all sorts of funny yeah. things, but the tropics stay okay. And remember, the tropics are half the Earth. Uh, so, you know, man and so on can move around and get there. Um, and as a result, CO2 doesn't have the wherewithal to make a major difference in climate. It's only if you assume the tropics are the whole Earth and dominated by the greenhouse effect. I don't know. I mean, you know, I'm pretty sure that's consonant with everything we knew about dynamic meteorology. But the narrative got off on the greenhouse. Okay. And uh, one is stuck with people arguing about it and arguing about whether this is the hottest day on record and so on. None of those things correspond to the data or the theory. So polar amplification, that's supposed to apply to both poles, right? Antarctica is supposed to be warming, isn't it? Uh, and it's uh, yeah, not? Yeah, well, you know, there's not much evidence of it. The ice is increasing there. But, you yeah. know, both hemispheres have peculiarities in this respect. And one of the problems with Antarctica is it's high. You know, uh, the Arctic, the North Pole is ocean. By Antarctica, you have a couple of kilometers, and uh, that changes things quite a lot in the dynamics and so on. But, you know, again, it, it's what makes the field interesting. Yeah. But what makes it uninteresting at this stage is the answer is predetermined. And I suspect, I mean, you know, one of the funny things that happened was, of course, uh, especially when Clinton Gore came into power. And Gore was already, you know, earth in the balance and all this stuff. Uh, he had made it his uh, signature topic. Uh, funding went up. Uh, and I think at first, given this was a tiny field, I mean, remember 1990, uh, no one on the faculty at MIT called themselves a climate scientist. Uh, nobody would. I mean, none of us knew everything. I don't know paleo. Uh, I know dynamics of the atmosphere, some oceans, radiative transfer. But, you know, there are also things I don't know. And that was true of everyone. All of a sudden, the funding increases and everyone's a climate scientist. But I think at first there was more money than people could absorb. So tons of people entered the field 
especially in the area of impacts. Uh, impacts included, of course, every weather event and so on. But more to the point, if you were working on uh, chipmunks and you titled your grant Chipmunks and Climate, you had a better chance. The upshot, I think, is there ended up not being enough funding for the people who are originally <laughs> They still complain about not enough funding, but funding drives this thing. I mean, uh, universities have changed during this period. I don't know if you've noticed it, but you know, when I started in academia, uh, administrative staff was relatively small. Today at MIT, it exceeds the faculty. Okay. And they need the money from the grant overhead. And so they run the show and uh, they have one goal, which, and you know, people talk about salaries, you know, inequality, there are billionaires and there are people. Universities have a pretty big salary difference between administrators and everyone else. But, you know, in any event, so you go and you, you have that and the money comes in and uh, the field is completely distorted by that. I do have a question here. Let's say you have a thousand climate scientists these days. What percent of them are actually working on trying to understand natural variability and what percent of them are studying uh, impacts on chipmunks and stuff? <laughs> I, I don't have the numbers. Actually. Yeah, I'm just curious, <laughs> roughly. <laughs> But I, I think it, first of all, you have, you have two groups. And so the people working on climate, I would say that among the serious ones, first of all, a lot of them don't work on climate anymore. It's too dangerous a subject. Oh, what do you mean by that? You know, in other words, who wants to work on a problem where you have to get a certain answer? Okay. You work on, there are plenty of problems yeah. to work on. Yes. Yeah. A lot of people don't. For those who do, I think the more honest of them try and keep straight, but pay a lip service yeah. to the, this is a serious problem and we should do something and then they go do their work and hope for the best. That's in a lot of the papers, right? Don't they put a line or two in the paper saying, oh, yeah, yeah, we're worried about this? Sure. I mean, yeah. you know, you have a paper trying to explain uh, the ice ages in terms of something called the Milankovitch hypothesis. And it's a beautiful paper, but in the middle it has, the author wishes to point out that this has no implications yeah, for yeah. dioxide. Yeah, it's... Uh, it's, uh, how shall I put it? I mean, it just feels wrong, but it's understood. At every journal, the editor, as I mentioned, you know, they got fired if they let a paper through that they shouldn't. And usually the technique is you have gatekeepers. So, you know, we have make a big deal about peer review. This is not an old thing, peer review. It's... I think it was introduced after World War II due to a paper shortage. Did not know that. Yeah, I mean, you know, and what is peer review? And it's treated in the popular press as though it's a certification, as though somebody can read it and say, this is correct and this is not correct. 
No, it's, you know, a device to maintain groupthink, primarily. And in the case of climate, there will be gatekeepers, people who will reject anything. And if the editor doesn't send it to them, you might get fired. So, you know, uh, peculiar pressures all through on that. You know, the money thing, you have uh, the president of the American Meteorological Society. In recent years, you know, their main concern is that this field should be funded. There was something I saw even yesterday about uh, people in health sciences feel climate is a big issue. And they're waiting for funding to study it. Uh, <laughs> Crazy. I don't know. I mean, you must have some questions. Yeah. Oh, I have enormous amounts of questions. Um, how do you think we can fix the peer review thing? Or how do you, uh, how do we get sanity back into climate science? One is, they're both big questions. Obviously, after dealing with this issue for over 30 years, I no longer have great confidence in how to fix it. Uh, I never anticipated it would last this long. Yeah. Um, and yet, I should have, perhaps, because uh, controlling carbon dioxide and now methane and now hydrofluorocarbons and you know, nitrous oxide, the power is just monumental that this gives you. I mean, after all, controlling carbon dioxide, you're a power-mad politician. Yes. What do you exhale when you breathe? 40,000 ppm CO2. Right. <laughs> wow, you could control breathing. <laughs> what a dream. <laughs> I don't know. So I think, you know, I've discussed this with uh, friends in the UK, they have something there called the Global Warming Policy Foundation. And it was started by a man called Nigel Lawson, I think. Uh, Nigel was uh, Chancellor of the Exchequer for Maggie Thatcher. Uh, Lord Lawson of lobbyists, <laughs> the English have their okay. job. <laughs> At any rate, uh, you know, he, he realized this was a problem, this warming issue. In any event, they're policy people mostly. They're some scientific advisors, but they've all argued, and I think now correctly, that one will have to wait and see the dramatic damage these policies will create in order for people to say, hey, was this needed? And, uh, of course, the answer will be no. Nothing they're proposing. Yeah. I mean, how should I put it? Uh, you know, one of the things I got that was kind of interesting, and I wrote a little piece on this, for of all things, uh, a magazine uh, from a group called Tikva, a Jewish group, uh, on China and uh, climate change. And, you know, the obvious thing, of course, is whatever Europe and the U.S. do is irrelevant because China and India and Africa are continuing full blast. So we're doing it for nothing. 
uh, we're doing it to get, you know, Germany, uh, BMW is going to leave for China. I mean, yeah, right. <laughs> um, and then I noticed uh, something from a group in China uh, organizing meetings to fight climate change in the U.S. among MIT students, offering them small monetary rewards for the most uh, uh, frightening papers. So are they really trying to pre prevent bad weather or do they have other motivations for that? Oh, the Chinese? Yeah. Yeah, they want us to destroy yeah, ourselves. Yeah. Why bother fighting us? I mean, you know, if you can create something that will cause the West to unravel without firing a shot, you'll go down in history as the world's most imaginative uh, conqueror. I mean, it seems like we're seeing it happen right now in the Netherlands, and Sri Lanka, all sorts of places. Oh, yeah, in Canada, yeah. Netherlands, Germany. Yeah. Germany yes. is now utterly dependent on Russia. And they, they've given up their nuclear. They've given up their coal. Yeah. They're now desperately trying to get coal again. <laughs> so I think, yeah. you know, as the politicians realize to survive, they have to bring back fossil fuels. They're going to have to say, well, maybe we were mistaken that the world is not coming to an end because of that. They're coming to an end because of our policy. Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. So that gives me some hope. That's... Uh... Maybe in the next year or two, it'll, things will change. I hope so. I hope so, yeah. too. Uh, it, you know, as I say, it's a, it's a pity in the sense that these are fun fields. I think, you know, for young people who are interested in problem solving in areas where there's lots to be done. I mean, a lot of fields now, you know, including physics, the problems left are tough. Nobody can solve them. Here's a field full of good problems that I think people can solve. Uh, one of them that they might not be able to solve, which is a curious one, is weather forecasting. <laughs> uh, that's been stuck, you know, as I put it, about three days for a long time. They keep saying we have some skill at six days, and they've been saying that for decades. But it's not something you can use very well. Maybe statistically, if you were, if it made a difference to you that there was a fifty-one percent chance of uh, pouring concrete, that was better than the forty-nine. Maybe it would help. But most of us don't operate that way. Do you think you have a handle on what caused the uh, like the cooling between the forties and the seventies, or what uh, what caused the warming after that, or the hiatus, or does anybody know or uh, you know, the answer yeah. is no, okay. but there's another answer. I think lots of people realize there are plenty of reasons it happens. One of the problems you have, and, and that's, you know, we're talking about relatively minor changes. I mean, when you speak of uh, cooling in that period, you're using that funny metric I mentioned, where, you know, it didn't tell you much about individual stations. I mean, even now, I think the Gulf Coast has been cooling. I heard that, yeah. For a long time, you know, since the 60s or 70s. But if you poll people, they'll say it's warming because they've been told you know, it's warming. <laughs> and we're talking about a degree. I mean, uh, yeah, I mentioned it sometime. I mean, our, our discourse is like, you know, if you went for your annual physical or something, 
and your temperature was 99 instead of 98.6 and you were put on life support. I mean, you know, there's something funny going on there. Um, no, it's, uh, you know, the ocean, for instance, you know, the surface of the earth is not in equilibrium with the sun because it has an interface with the ocean. And the ocean has circulation systems that are constantly taking heat away and bringing it to the surface. We see this with El Nino and so and so on. You know, you have changes in the ocean and they influence this global metric. Um, you know, the time scale of the ocean circulations can be as long as a thousand years. Something, you know, the depth of the ocean, it's massive and so on. You'll have changes on that time scale due to that. And we don't have any handle on it. Yeah, I've heard you make this point on other podcasts that the Earth's temperature can change without any change external to the Earth, right? right exactly. Yeah. I mean, we know this also. You know, it's funny. I don't know if I'd call it cognitive dissonance. But for instance, people always speak about the sunspot cycle. Okay? Roughly every 11 years, the sunspots go up and down. Is anything forcing it? No. No, it's internal yeah, to the yeah, sun. Yeah. We know our magnetic field flips every so often. Is anything forcing it? No, it just does it. I was mentioning this 26-month cycle. You know, when we didn't have a theory for it, people were suggesting maybe that's the gestation period of elephants and so on. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> You're always looking for a cause. And uh, we forget the fact that these systems are not steady. They wobble. I'm going to jump around here a little bit. I, I saw that you studied the ozone hole or studied ozone. I, do you have uh, anything you can share with us on what you think is happening with the ozone hole itself, whether we fixed it with the Montreal Protocol or is it naturally uh, I, moving around? How should I put it? <laughs> I, fixing it and so on. I mean, it's, again, a, a field with an interesting history you realize it didn't begin with the ozone hole. Uh, in its most common incarnation, it started with the supersonic transport. Okay. You realize that? I did not, no. Okay. Uh, you know, the French and the British were building the Concorde. Uh, we weren't. And suddenly people said uh, that uh, the exhaust of the SST would destroy ozone essentially NOx, oxides of nitrogen. There was, this was used to argue against letting the Concorde fly. And it created its own little hysteria. You began to think about the chemicals involved that would do it and so on. But then one realized that the oxides of nitrogen were naturally present in far greater amounts than we were providing by this. Okay. So that pretty much ended that scare, but ozone had entered the thinking of atmospheric chemists. And suddenly the British Antarctic said, we see this massive hole in the ozone layer 
lasts about a month, the end of winter and beginning of spring, sunlight returns. And that sounded pretty frightening uh, to people. And there was a lot of search for it. And uh, finally, it was concluded that chlorine atoms could cause it. And they were associated with uh, Freon. Uh, it was accidental, probably, that this was just around the time that DuPont's uh, patent on Freon was disappearing. Uh -huh. <laughs> and so Freon, uh, DuPont was very enthusiastic about this. Uh, you need uh, new coolants, refrigerants. Wow. At any rate, uh, that caught on. You banned Freon's. I remember when our negotiator at the Montreal Convention that uh, had an international ban on Freon's, this Richard Benedict, who I knew for some odd reason, <laughs> came through MIT. And he was just overjoyed. He had just negotiated this. And his statement was, you ain't seen nothing yet. Wait till we get to carbon dioxide. Really? So in many respects, he at the State Department knew this was a trial run for international agreements on carbon dioxide. Interesting, because I have heard it uh, held up now as, look, we fixed the ozone hole using this, so let's do the same thing with CO2. The ozone hole is still there. there yeah. I don't know if it's as intense as it was, but the, the thing about it was it was always, always going to be confined to a narrow region of the South Pole. Okay. It was never going to impact anyone else. What was going on elsewhere was minor. Even at its worst, nobody was told when you were told it was going to increase uh, skin cancer. Yes. Because you were more exposed to ultraviolet. Now, your exposure to ultraviolet depends on the path of the light through the atmosphere. So when your zenith angle is very low, it's a big path. Yes. And as you go toward the equator, the path shortens. It's going in. Yeah. Yeah. What is What was the danger equivalent to in terms of, let's say, moving south? It is going to be on the order of moving from New York to Boston. How many people, when they drive to New York from Boston, worry about exposure? To Interesting. <laughs> of course, by the time you got to Boulder, Colorado. <laughs> yes, we're finished. Yeah. Okay. All right. So you don't think that humans necessarily made a big difference in, the, in terms of the size of the ozone hole? It's certainly for our safety, anyway? Uh, certainly for the safety of yeah. anyone. For the penguins, no. <laughs> okay. All right. Um, I have another question here. Um, do you know if uh, we ever will get some sort of a red team versus a blue team science where we can get opposing teams uh, looking at climate science in more than one way? Now, people have been begging for this yes. for years and um, without success. Uh, you know, Will Happer was you know, down in Washington and asking for it. But uh, there were people in Trump's retinue and family and so on yeah. who didn't want it. Okay. All right. That would have been nice. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it would have been nice, but it would have been very difficult because, you know, Noah, 
as they're realizing there is a swamp. Noah is completely committed to this. NASA was not. And uh, I think a guy called Griffith or someone was director, and he had to back off. He said, I'm open-minded on this. I said, no, you can't be. Okay. So the state has taken a firm role on this. And and that, that, of course, is the danger, because in terms of funding, the state, the government has a monopoly. Just based on your experience and knowledge, what do you think might be the optimum level of CO2 for humans or for life on Earth, or the optimum temperature? Uh, I think warmer is better. First of all, yeah. I don't know. Have you ever heard of something called the Köppen-Geiger classification of climate? Uh, no, I don't know that. There's no reason you should. But it was the object of climate research from, I would say, the 40s until the 70s. Yeah. Namely, the Earth itself has dozens of climate regimes. We, you know, you can see even within a single state, I mean, for instance, even in a small country like Israel, you have deserts in the south, you have snow-capped mountains in the north, you have skiing in the north, you have, the, you have many regimes. So, you know, when we speak of the climate, that, that's a little bit, we would like to know why you have different ones all over right. the earth. And uh, I don't see, you know, that uh, we're going to make much progress assuming one. Um, so, okay. so yeah, you, yeah. Yeah, 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 the metric I mentioned, which looks like zero. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah that's right. Okay. This is what we want to predict. Yeah. And then to tell us everything. That's okay. magical thinking. <laughs> so maybe we shouldn't worry so much about temperature, but for uh, CO2 levels for the growth of plants, CO2. then we want more. Look, uh, how should I put it? The plants evolved when you had thousands of parts per million. They starved for CO2. Um, in a lecture hall, because people are breathing, you can have 400, 500, 600 parts per million. Uh, you, in the space station or in a nuclear submarine, atomic submarine, you allow up to 5,000 parts per million. So I don't think uh, CO2 is worrisome as a pollutant. As you say, it's not a big control on climate and it is a free fertilizer. So I wouldn't think one would be bothered by a thousand parts per billion. Okay. Unfortunately, I don't think we'll reach that. Okay. Uh, do you have any handle? If we burned all the reserves of fossil fuels that we know about, uh, could we get up to 1,000 or even then it wouldn't? Depends on yeah. how fast you did it, but I don't yeah. think you reached a thousand. Yeah. Do you think we have a good handle on the carbon cycle and what happens to the CO2, how long it stays in the air? Because sometimes I hear people claim it stays up there for hundreds of years. Yeah, you know, that's, again, a kind of misuse of language. You know, for instance, you know, the Greeks knew this. Let's say you have uh, something that has a half-life of five years. 40 years, doesn't matter what number. Mm -hmm. What does that mean? Well, it means, you know, it's exponentially decaying. It reaches yeah. a half of the body. Uh, to be sure, you go out a thousand years, it's not zero. Right, right. 
uh, you know, something yeah. is lasted yeah. that long, but you don't work yeah. that way. Right. Is there anything I should be asking you that I didn't or that any point you'd like to make or? No, I, I think, you know, if people are interested, they, they can get in touch with me. Okay. Um, you know, by now, the most common thing I get is requests from people, usually young people, uh, you know, what can I read so I understand climate? And I suddenly realized what a difficult issue this is. Because you do need to know fluid mechanics. You need, they're not really asking, uh, can they understand it? That would require really depth mathematics, all this stuff. Uh, what they're accustomed to is there are areas of science where there is common agreement that is legitimately arranged. You know, We've learned about the double helix and so on, these things in biology. And so a person can tell them about it and they can feel, ah, that's what they're talking about. With climate, because it's a political issue and it's so distorted, how do you expect the layman to judge between things? He was told right at the beginning in 1988, all scientists agreed. There were none who were working on it. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and I, I don't know what one can do about that. I mean, I, uh, people have to understand that they're not going to readily understand the details and that the field itself has been polluted. So, uh, Richard Linton, thank you so much for doing this. I really, nice. really appreciate this. This is really fun for me, and I'd love to do it again sometime if you ever have time again. So. We'll see. All right. <laughs> that sounds great. All right. Thank you very much. Talk to you next time.